If you please turn with me in your Bibles to, first of all, Matthew chapter 1. Our text this morning is the first text, is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So hear God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then if you will turn to Luke chapter 1, we have verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There is a common notion among liberal, unbelieving Christians that the miracles of the Bible didn't really happen. Among the people of those circles, the miracles of Scripture are said to be myths that were added to the historical accounts of Scripture in order to make an impression upon people so that they would be inclined toward faith in God and Jesus. And this is the perspective that liberal, unbelieving Christianity has about the miracle of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And since we have a record of the virgin birth in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels, Matthew and Luke come under the attack of those who would discredit their reporting. This morning we want to consider what Matthew and Luke report concerning the virgin birth, and 
in particular why their reporting is credible. We'll finally consider why the doctrine of the virgin birth is vital to the entire plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. So that rather than the virgin birth being problematic, as liberals would have it, it's actually perfectly compatible with the message of the gospel. So let's begin with an evaluation of Luke's gospel as he reports the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. What he reports is the angel Gabriel appearing to the Virgin Mary and announcing the birth of her son. Gabriel's announcement to Mary of the coming of her son. Jesus is called the Annunciation. And that word Annunciation basically means announcement. And there are essentially three Annunciations in the Christmas story. Prior to the Annunciation to Mary, there is recorded by Luke the Annunciation to Zechariah of the coming of his son John the Baptist, who we know was the forerunner of the Messiah. The next main event Luke records is Gabriel's Annunciation to Mary of Jesus' birth. And Matthew records the Annunciation to Joseph of Jesus' birth. What stands out about Luke's record of Gabriel's Annunciation to Mary are all of the references to the virgin birth. Luke reports that Gabriel was sent to a virgin, though we learn a virgin betrothed to Joseph. We're told that the virgin's name was Mary. The angel tells Mary that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. And she has told things about her son that could not possibly be true of a mere human son. His name is to be called Jesus, which means Jehovah Salvation. Now, it's one thing for godly Old Testament parents to name their son Jesus, or the Hebrew form of that name, which would be Joshua. It's, it's one thing for parents to, to uh, name their child that in anticipation of Jehovah providing salvation. But for God to name Mary's son, to name him Jesus, tells us that this is his identity as, as God is revealing it. He is Jehovah come to bring salvation. Along these lines, Mary is told that he will be great, which could be taken in a number of ways. Uh, John the Baptist was great because of his important role in the plan of salvation as the forerunner of Christ. But, But Gabriel goes on to describe Jesus' greatness in a way that could only be true of deity. He says he will be called the Son of the Most High, He will be given the throne of his father David, something which theoretically could be true of a mere man, but not what follows, where it says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is no earthly king over an earthly kingdom, but rather an eternal kingdom. I mean, all earthly kingdoms, all earthly kings eventually pass away. But Mary's son will be the eternal king of an eternal kingdom. So this is setting us up to understand why Jesus could not have been born uh, of ordinary generation as a mere man. But upon hearing this report, Mary's mind turns in a different direction than we anticipate. She doesn't question how her son could be these things. Her question is much more practical How can she conceive and bear a son when she has not been with a man? Her question is not one of questioning faith, but of questioning logistics. How can this happen since I am a virgin? 
And the angel doesn't respond in kind with a practical, earthly, physically focused answer like we might expect. He doesn't say, for example, isn't it obvious, Mary, that you're going to have to get married? Joseph is just going to have to get his act together and get things prepared for you to have a life together. Of course, you can't get pregnant as a virgin. Joseph will have to take you as his wife in marriage. Well, that's not what happens. But it seems that, in fact, it seems that Mary would have naturally thought of all of this herself. Her question to the angel indicates she knew that the angel wasn't talking about a son who could be born through Joseph in an ordinary way. There's no way a mere human child could have the greatness that the angel is here describing of her child being the son of God and an eternal king of an eternal kingdom. Something, is, something extraordinary is undoubtedly in view. And the angel's answer confirms the mystery of what is to take place. Verse 36, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. As part of the confirmation that there were extraordinary things being done by God, things that were not humanly possible, Mary is told that her relative Elizabeth, who was barren, is already six months along in her pregnancy. And we find Mary responding in a very appropriate and uh, faithful way in, in one of submission to the role that the Lord has for her to play in God's plan of salvation. So that's Luke's account. Uh, Matthew's gospel also has an account of the announcement of Jesus' virgin birth. The Annunciation to Joseph is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which I read earlier. Um, this Annunciation took place after the angel's Annunciation to Mary. For now, at the time of the Annunciation to Joseph, Mary is pregnant. And uh, we are told by Matthew, matter-of-factly, in verse 18, that Mary was, quote, with child from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know about this. And his perspective is that his fiancée has been sexually immoral. Uh, she's uh, apparently gotten pregnant from some other man because Joseph knows that he and, and Mary have not been together sexually. And so his plan is to divorce her quietly in order to avoid shaming her unnecessarily. It was then that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and explained what was happening. This is verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 1. angel appeared and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew then informs his readers, informs us that this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We're told that after Joseph woke from his dream, he did as the angel said. He took Mary as his wife, and Matthew reports that he did not know her until after she had given birth to a son. Additionally, as part of his obedience, Joseph called his name Jesus. We wonder about that decision to not know his wife physically in sexual intercourse until after Jesus was born. We wonder, was that necessary? Or was that something that Joseph just happened to do? Or perhaps he did it out of reverence for what the Lord was doing. Perhaps some other explanation might be appropriate. 
and uh, we bring that up. Notice the, the angel is not quoted as telling Joseph that Mary was to remain a virgin until after Jesus' birth. The best, best explanation for Joseph's decision is that Joseph knew scripture. He knew the passage that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7.14. And it, Isaiah says that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In other words, it says the woman will not only be a virgin in conceiving a son, but also while bearing or giving birth to him. If you think about it, we don't only speak of Jesus' virgin conception, but of his virgin birth. And so we take Joseph's action of preserving Mary's virginity as a part of his obedience. This also leads us to understand that Matthew quotes this verse from Isaiah, not simply to offer an Old Testament prophetic basis for what was happening, but also to help us understand why Joseph conducted himself as he did. It's not difficult to understand why Joseph's obedience in this regard was the Lord's desire. The result of not knowing Mary until after Jesus was born was that Jesus' virgin conception by the Holy Spirit was guarded and was thereby confirmed. Joseph's actions ensured that no doubt would be cast on the fact that Jesus' conception was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us then to consider a consideration of some practical reasons why Matthew and Luke's reporting of Jesus' virgin birth can be considered credible. And to even bring this up implies that there are those who question the validity, the credibility of these reports. Of course, there will always be those who doubt the, the word of God, the validity of it as being the word of God, um, inerrant and infallible. There are those who say the Bible has errors. They say that the teachings uh, of such miracles as the virgin birth of Christ are myths that no reasonable, scientifically minded person would believe. And ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit who convinces us that the Bible is the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces us that the miracles um, of the Bible are, are true and that there are no errors in the reporting of these miraculous events. Nevertheless, there are also sound arguments for believing the Bible, including these reports from Matthew and Luke of Jesus' virgin birth. And so I want to take some time to present to you uh, uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts, um, why, the, why these, these accounts are credible as historical, reliable reports. So Luke was a Greek. Uh, Luke who wrote the gospel bearing his name, as well as the book of Acts. He was a Greek, and from Acts we learn that Luke was Paul's companion in his missionary work. At various points in the history of Paul's missionary journeys, we surmise that Luke was with him when he begins to write in the first person and says, we did this, or we did that. And so we believe that Luke was with Paul in Jerusalem, uh, at that particular point in his uh, missionary journey and would have had ample opportunity to talk with some of the firsthand witnesses of Jesus' ministry, including Peter and, and also James, the Lord's brother. And what stands out about the opening paragraphs of Luke's writings in the Gospel of Luke and Acts is that Luke wrote very consciously as a news reporter seeking to confirm the teachings of Christianity. 
He says that his gospel is the result of his compiling a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among them, presumably by Jesus as part of the Christian story. Acts 1 verse 1 tells us that Luke considered his first book, which we understand to be his gospel account, to be all about what Jesus began to do and teach. And some have suggested that Luke's account, um, his, his uh, book of Acts, is an account of what Jesus later did as the ascended Christ, um, as, as of what he did from heaven in the building of his church. And uh, Luke informs the reader in the beginning of his gospel that he got his information from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He says that he followed all things closely for some time past, the goal being to write an orderly account. Um, we learn Luke was writing most immediately to a man by the name of Theophilus, hoping to give him certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. So he was probably some kind of government official or nobleman, and he had been apparently taught the history and doctrine of Christ and his ministry. And Luke wants to give an accurate and researched account of what had happened so that Theophilus would have certainty, uh, would have the, the certainty to know that what he believed was true, true to the facts, true to history. A study of Luke's, of, um, of Luke's um, book of Acts, as well as his gospel, um, uh, when his reports are compared with other credible historical accounts, we are led to the conclusion that indeed Luke is a reliable reporter and historian. And what we find in the opening chapter of Luke is confirmation that Luke is not making up some kind of a story, but is reporting what he learned from witnesses. And the evidence for this is rather interesting, and it focuses on Luke's use of language. The first four verses of chapter 1, Luke is addressing Theophilus, and he is giving a personal summary of what has led him to write his gospel. And these verses are in the normal Greek pattern of one sentence that goes on and on and on with numerous participles linking up uh, uh, phrases and clauses so that everything flows together. It's even been said that the first four verses of Luke chapter 1 are, quote, the perfect Greek sentence. English doesn't normally ramble on like this, and so translators have broken it up into separate sentences, though still honoring the connections that exist so that we can relate all of the sentences to the one main thought. But this Greek way of writing changes with the coming of chapter, excuse me, of verse 5. So this Greek way, way of writing suddenly changes with verse 5, and, and Machen is quoted as explaining the prologue of the gospel, embracing the first four verses, is one of the most carefully constructed sentences in the whole New Testament. It would be difficult to imagine a more skillfully formed and more typically Greek sentence than this. Yet this typically Greek sentence is followed by what is probably the most markedly Semitic section in the whole New Testament. So what this means is that the style changes very radically with verse 5 into a Semitic or Jewish style. Jewish form or style of writing is much more choppy with simple sentences of fact joined by the conjunction and. There's also a characteristic of 
of Jewish poetry called parallelism, which we find also throughout uh, Luke's account of the Christmas story. And it's the technique of saying something and then repeating the same thing, but in slightly different words. So that Mary, for example, uses this style when she is quoted as saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That's classic Jewish parallelism. There are also other matters that are reported that belong to the Jewish culture that were very foreign ideas to the Greeks. And one would be the disgrace and disfavor that Elizabeth felt in her barrenness before she was pregnant with John the Baptist. We are told that the Greeks would not have understood what, what that was even all about. And then the annunciations to Zechariah and Mary involved Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah that Luke as a Greek and later Gentile members of the church would not have been particularly familiar with. But covenantal wording that was very common fare for Old Testament believers like Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth. The point is that as soon as we come to verse 5, the style suddenly changes to a Jewish style which tells us that Luke is reporting what others have told him, that what he's reporting is not his own words, which would would have undoubtedly remained in that Greek style. But what he is giving us is the writing of Jews, perhaps even a written account from Mary herself. The evidence is that he is reporting eyewitness accounts, or at least accounts that came from those who knew and talked with the eyewitnesses, which tells us that the doctrine of the virgin birth was a teaching that belonged to the earliest accounts of Jesus' birth. It's not something that Luke tacked on. Which brings us then to a consideration of Matthew's account of Jesus' virgin birth. Matthew's account is Jewish in character throughout, and yet with a New Testament perspective. Matthew reports the Annunciation to Joseph, who has found out that Mary is pregnant, but he knows he is not the father, and he determines to divorce her quietly. And we wonder why Joseph is called Mary's husband and why he's going to divorce her if they are only betrothed. But this is all understandable when we understand the Jewish culture and when we understand that in the Jewish culture, betrothal was the first step in marriage and actually involved an exchange of vows. And so they were considered at that point husband and wife. While a betrothed couple were to live together only after the actual wedding ceremony, a betrothed couple was considered legally married. This is common practice among the Jews, perfectly compatible with how they did things. Matthew is also clearly writing as a Jew knowledgeable of the Old Testament, specifically quoting Old Testament prophecy as fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. He quotes Isaiah 7.14, Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He later will quote Micah 5.2, a prophecy of of the Messiah, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. He references Hosea 11.1, Jeremiah 31 verse 5, as well as a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. It's interesting to note that Matthew and Luke's accounts are different in some ways, which indicates to us that these were authors who were not working in cahoots. Um, Luke is a Greek, but his account is distinctly Jewish in terms of the Old Testament language that's used in connection with Jesus and his ministry. Luke clearly reports the words of those who had not yet come to see the full expansion 
of the gospel to the Gentiles. Matthew, meanwhile, is writing to Jews in a distinctly Jewish style, but is clearly writing from a New Testament perspective of Jesus being a savior from sin for both Jew and Gentile. And there are other differences. Matthew includes the, the Gentile magi while, magi, while Luke has the shepherds. Luke has the angel appearing to Mary. Matthew has the angel appearing to Joseph. Luke has Mary and Joseph coming from Nazareth to Bethlehem and gives an account of Jesus' birth. Matthew practically mentions the actual birth of Jesus in passing and has Mary and Joseph receiving the Magi in their home in Bethlehem probably years after Jesus' birth. These differences tell us that these histories and specifically the doctrine of the virgin birth were not invented. Unbelievers tell us that these biblical accounts were invented, especially this idea of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But if Matthew and Mark invented the virgin birth separately, there wouldn't be the agreement that we find in their accounts. Both teach the virgin birth. Both say essentially the same things about the virgin birth. Both use unique wording in their genealogies, that, but yet they still both bring up in their genealogies uh, things that tell us that Jesus was not, uh, pardon that, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. There are differences in their accounts, but not contradictions. Matthew and Luke together give us a very well-rounded, perfectly coherent account of history. In fact, the differences are ones that we would expect from two separate reports. For no two reporters are going to report exactly the same way. It's actually the case that if the reports were exactly the same, that's when we would suspect that something was up and that they were working in cahoots. So then what about the accusation of the world that Matthew and, and Luke colluded with each other in the invention of the virgin birth? Some suggest that um, Matthew and Luke met and they decided to make up history together or that one of them wrote down their fiction and the other used their material or they never met and never used each other's material but both made use separately of the same, doc, uh, same document where someone else had come up with this novel idea of the virgin birth. But if they had colluded in any of these ways, their stories would have been much more uniform. There would not have been so many differences. What we have is, in fact, credible accounts that fit with two historians who are not inventing but reporting. They have individually studied the evidence. They have arrived at the same conclusions regarding the main details, and yet clearly writing to different audiences from slightly different perspectives. And so the evidence is that the virgin birth was not invented but was reported as it was revealed by the angel and experienced by Mary. This brings us then to the consideration of why the doctrine of the virgin birth is both credible and vital. The virgin birth of Christ is not something new. It's not something clearly that, that Matthew or Luke invented because it's a teaching that lines up perfectly with the prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, Genesis 3.15 is considered the first record of the good news of God sending a Savior of sinners. <coughs> and there God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God was promising an offspring, a son of the woman who would defeat Satan. Now this verse doesn't explicitly teach the virgin birth, but it's noteworthy that only the woman is mentioned. Normally a son would be connected to his father. Nevertheless, from then on, the Messiah is referred to as the seed or the offspring of the woman. And this fits perfectly with Jesus being only a son of a woman and not the son of a man. Isaiah 7.14 is a prophecy originally delivered to King Ahaz. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the people of God were familiar with the idea, however extraordinary it was, of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. The doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is also credible and, in fact, perfectly reasonable in the context of God wanting to take on a human nature in order to become one of us. A child born of a human father and a human mother can only be a human. A child born of a human mother but conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit opens the door to something unique. We can't understand how it all works. We don't understand all that is involved in the virgin birth, but it is perfectly reasonable to think that for a child to be a son of Mary, but also the divine son of God, he would have to be conceived in a unique way. The virgin birth actually makes perfect sense as the way for Jesus to be both God and man. It was important for Jesus to be God because no mere man could endure the infinite wrath of God against sin and survive. Our Savior had to be powerful enough to endure the justice of God against the sins of all of God's people without either giving in to despair or being crushed. He also had to be powerful enough to die and then raise himself from the dead in victory over death. Only as the divine Son of God was Jesus able to bear our sins, to fully satisfy the justice of God, to suffer all that our sins deserve, and he did it in a matter of a few hours. He suffered unto death in just a matter of a few hours and then a few days later raised himself from the dead. Only God could do that. There's another angle why the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is vital and necessary that also has to do with Jesus being our divine Savior. No mere man can save us. Of course, a big part of the problem is that since the fall, there has been no perfect man. Um, Since a sinner cannot atone for his own sins, he's certainly not going to be able to atone for the sins of others. But it's also the case that even a perfect man wouldn't be able to save us. Since even if there was such a person who was perfectly obedient to God, all that person could do was say to God, I've done my duty. No mere man can actually pay the price to redeem sinners and earn eternal life. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9, puts it this way, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Only the divine Son of God could offer a sacrifice of such infinite value that it would atone for the sins of many. The doctrine of the virgin birth is also vital, even necessary, to Jesus being our Savior by enabling him to be a sinless man. While a mere man can't save us, for Jesus 
as the divine son of God to be able to represent us in his saving work. He had to be a man and he had to be a man without sin. The way Jesus was protected from original sin was in the way of being conceived through the Holy Spirit. Again, while we don't know all that was involved, the absence of a human father and conception through the Holy Spirit ensured that Jesus was a sinless man who was able to offer a sacrifice of himself on our behalf. So it is that the virgin birth is perfectly compatible with the Christmas story. It's perfectly consistent with the testimony of the Old Testament and the predictions of the coming Messiah. It's perfectly compatible with the kind of Savior that we need and that God has provided for us in his Son, a Savior who is both fully God and fully man. As such, Jesus is a Savior who can represent us because he is one of us through Mary. He is a Savior who can save us because he is without sin. And that's possible because he was not conceived and born like everyone else. Uh, wasn't born of ordinary generation. Uh, for all of us who are born of ordinary generation, we inherit Adam's sin. Jesus escaped that. He is a Savior who can save us because he is God and thus able to endure the eternal wrath of God against the sins of all the elect. As God, we would not expect him to be born in an ordinary way. His divine nature could, be, could, could not be united with a corrupt human nature. Imagine the holy God joining himself to a corrupt human nature. Not possible. He had to come into our lives in a unique way. Since all who are born of a man and woman are only flesh and blood. When you put it all together, the virgin birth is not problematic at all. It's perfect. It's actually perfect when we understand the need, the, the Savior that we need, the kind of Savior that, that sinful man needs, and the Savior that God has given. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the virgin birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, this miracle that was revealed to us in Scripture, something that we do not fully understand, we admit, and yet, Father, we can see how it fits perfectly with your plan to send a Savior who is both you and man, who is uh, your eternal Son, and yet the Son of Mary. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have one who can represent us. We thank you that in Jesus we have your divine Son who can do all that is necessary, has the power, the ability uh, to do all that is necessary to save us. Father, our sin problem is great. It's a, it's a problem that we could never solve on our own. But we thank you, Father, that you did all that was necessary in order to enter into our lives and by grace to do all that is needed for us to be saved, for us to be reconciled to you. We are the ones who did wrong, and yet you are the one who in grace sent your Son. Father, we stand in awe of your love toward us in Christ. We stand in awe of the logistics involved in bringing this about, things that, uh, that as we think about it, we can hardly understand. And yet, Father, you understand all of these things and had planned them from eternity. Father, we give thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.